We speak with David Lane Helm about his books, politics, and why John Howard did what he did. I'm Neil Jenkins, and you can contact us at podcast at politicsreloaded.com. He, uh, he may not be the prettiest person on the block, <laughs> but when he tells you something, you can take it to the bank. Welcome to the Go News of Australia podcast. It's the podcast for Australian shooters who just want the political interference taken out of shooting. David Lanehelm is a name that's familiar with, with many shooters around Australia, and he's with me now. How are you doing, David? I'm well, thank you. Good. Uh, your journey through shooting, and in particular politics, I think is pretty well known around the country. Uh, anybody who's paid attention to uh, I guess the the movement of political parties, um, particularly the minor political parties, will have heard of you. Can you, can you just give us a quick rundown of your journey uh, that took you into Parliament, into federal parliament? Yes. So I've been interested in politics uh, for a very long time. I joined uh, Young Labor when I was, at the time, too young to vote. I think I was nineteen or twenty. Um, I worked on the um, campaign. For, in 1972 that led to Gough Whitlam getting elected. So I've been interested in politics a long time, but my political inclinations changed a lot. There's an old saying that if you're not a socialist at 20, you haven't got a heart, but if you're still a socialist at 40, you haven't got any brains. So by if that standard is true, then I've got both a heart and a brain. Um, Although sometimes I think my wife would disagree. But um, so I... I left the Labor Party relatively early. Um, I actually joined the Liberals for a little while and uh, didn't find they were to my liking very much. Um, I then got involved with the Shooters Party in New South Wales and I actually ran the election campaign in 1999 that led to the re-election of uh, John Tingle. No, no, 2003 it was, 2003 I think. Anyway, it was the re-election of uh, John Tingle um, campaign, which I ran. That was my first success. Um, but the Shooters Party was never libertarian. They were, they were leave me alone um, and get the government off my back when it came to firearms issues. But on other issues, they were inclined to be rather authoritarian. So I was very uncomfortable with them. And uh, one thing led to another, so I left them and joined the Liberal Democrats. At the time, the Liberal Democrats were in danger of not surviving. Um, the people who started the party were not not the kind of people who could run a political party. So um, I'm well organised, if nothing else, and so um, I basically got it, got it on its feet and ran it for eight years from my business office, as a matter of fact. It was uh, pretty lonely times in the beginning. We had very few members, but gradually we built up. And then um, we started running in by-elections. We got registered for federal elections. Um, We got registered for state elections in a couple of states. South Australia was our first, I think. And then uh, uh, we we ran in federal elections, several federal elections, without doing any, any good. But then in 2013, we, we really went hard. Um, we knew what we wanted to do. It was in the days of group voting tickets with preferences being important. 
And so we negotiated lots of preference deals. And then in the end, um, in New South Wales, I got number one position on the ballot paper. It was the election when Tony Abbott and the Liberals kicked uh, the Gillard-Rudd government out. So there are a lot of people who wanted to vote Liberal. Um, so there was some confusion about, um, about the Liberal Democrats and the Liberal Party. Um, I ended up getting 9.5% of the vote, which was way more than I needed to get elected, so I was, I was there. The only problem was that uh, Malcolm Turnbull then rather stupidly decided to call a, a double dissolution in 2016. So I had to go around again and get re-elected, but I did. I, so I got elected then. Um, and <clears throat> but because I was elected in, with a lower quota than, uh, than all the others, so double dissolution is all the Senate, not just half the Senate, um, I only got a three-year term. I resigned three months before the end of those three years in order to run for the New South Wales Parliament. But uh, um, that was 2019. Um, but Mark Latham was running, uh, pinching independent or minor party votes. The Shooters Party were doing very well at that time. This was prior to them having a big internal fight. And uh, so we didn't, we just fell slightly short of enough votes. So as a result, I was no longer a member of parliament from 2019. So the shooting issues, I've been a shooter since I was a kid. I just, I grew up on a farm and it's just natural to have um, firearms. Although in fairness, all I ever shot until I was well into my 20s was uh, rimfires and air rifles. Um, I always took the view that it was not the government's business to tell us what we could do, that if we weren't doing anybody else any harm, uh, we, there was really no role for the government to get involved. And of course, we, I never did any harm with my rifles nor did anybody else that I knew. So um, I was very indignant about, about the government trying to tell all of us that uh, we were an, a danger to society. I strongly disagreed with that all along. Hmm. Um, whilst there is, I guess we could talk about a whole range of issues uh, from, I guess, you know, how the major parties think, etc., etc. What I wanted to focus on really were a couple of books you, you've already written and one that you're working on now. Can you just take us through the ones you've already uh, put out? Yeah, so one is a, a collection of my speeches and articles. I was very prolific when I was in the Senate writing articles um, for newspapers and magazines. And they are, I'm a libertarian. The Liberal Democrats is a libertarian party, so we believe in small government, low taxes, very limited regulation, removal of red tape, those sorts of things. So I wrote lots of articles and gave lots of speeches on, on topics related to that. And my first book is called Freedom Salesman, and it was a collection of those speeches and articles. So, and that was issued, that was published while I was still in the Senate. It's no longer in print, but it is available um, on Kindle. My second book... Um, which is probably more relevant to your audience, is called Gun Control. I started it when I was in the Senate, but then I didn't finish it until I'd, I'd left, and it was published in 2020. It, it was published as a hard, hardback. It's now out in paperback, and it's also just now uh, up on Kindle. So it's, av it's available for download from Kindle, and it's also still in print. Um, the publisher is Connor Court, 
and they are, they sell it through their website, um, both the hardback and the paperback. So gun control was a, a cons. I wrote it because I was very frustrated in the Senate dealing with people who knew nothing about guns. They couldn't tell one end from another. They barely could tell which end the bullet came out of. And yet there they were telling us all that Australia had got got it right on gun control, that if we didn't, hadn't done what we did in 1996 with the Howard Gun Laws and National Firearms Agreement and all that stuff, that we would be going down the American path. And when I used to say to them, well, what do you think the American path is? They didn't have a clue. No. And I would say to them, what do you think the, the uh, gun laws are in Australia? They didn't really have a clue. And when I'd say to them, what do you think the gun laws in Australia should be like? And they would tell me things which were already the law. They're just absolutely ignorant. And it just frustrated me to, to death because there they were making decisions essentially about what gun laws should, um, should apply. I found it ridiculous. So I wrote the book primarily for educational purposes, both for policymakers and for other gun owners or anyone with an interest in the subject. It's a, it's pro there is opinion in it. If you read the book from, from cover to cover, you'd be left in no doubt about my views, but that wasn't its primary purpose. Its primary purpose was to be informative and educational. Hmm. And I also found it extremely frustrating this assumption that if you don't have Australian type gun laws you have American type gun laws as if there's only two countries in the world yeah. I, yeah. so there are chapters in the book written by people who live in other countries about their gun laws and that includes New Zealand Switzerland, the UK Ireland, India, the Czech Republic There's, and so they, those, those chapters were all written by people shooters who live in those countries and wrote, wrote about what their gun laws are and, and a reasonable amount about the history of their gun laws as well. And then, of course, there's a, there's a very large chapter in the book about gun laws in America. And the, it, anyone who wants to sort of educate themselves, there's a wealth of information there because, of course, like in Australia, America has both federal and state jurisdictions there are gun laws in both of them. And even though the federal laws apply nationally, the state laws vary enormously. There's tremendous differences from one state to another. And yet, and yet, whenever you hear people talking about America and gun laws, they talk as if there's same gun laws in every state of America. And it's just profoundly wrong. And, uh, and so I attempted to address that with the book. There's also some states in the US uh, which have laws that are worse than ours. Um, there are some, some aspects. Yeah. Like, some I, aspects. Ownership ages. Um, there are taxes in some states that are just outrageous. There's limitations on um, ammunition that um, we're not really seeing here. Um, the other yes. thing about the US is uh, you're right. I mean, people gravitate towards just the gun law thing as though everything else is a constant um, and I had a similar discussion with Danny Ryan, who's a former chair of Field and Game the other day, when, in fact, um, America's a, such a different country. I mean, it looks the same. You know, their freedoms are very different 
so it's not a gun issue. It's actually more than a gun issue uh, it, 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 in terms of what it sh- the debate should be about because it's about freedoms in the US. That's how they live. And uh, whereas people in Australia, critics, as you said, they just gravitate only to the gun issue. Yeah. yeah so America's history is dramatically different from ours. They had a, they had a, um, a revolution against the British. Mm-hmm. They have a libertarian... Uh, element to their constitution. Um, it was based on the writings of John Locke, who's sort of a libertarian philosopher. Um, well, a philosopher that a lot of, lot of libertarians uh, follow. Um, and so they've got, they've got that history of fighting against repression and, and the entrenched constitutional uh, protection of freedoms plus the Bill of Rights that uh, we don't have. We don't have any of that. We were uh, settled relatively peacefully, especially if you weren't an Aboriginal, and we achieved our independence from Britain um, very, very peacefully and uh, with, with no objections from the Brits. I think they were glad to get rid of us. And so our, our culture is, is dramatically different. We have, a, we have a history of being obedient, compliant servants of the Crown, and if, if you judge it by our reactions to the COVID lockdowns, we can see the difference. They fought against the, the lockdowns in, in many states in America quite vigorously, whereas uh, here was was relatively low-key and, and severely repressed into the bargain. Um, you used a word before, which was part of the motivation for writing uh, your second book in particular, and it was the word frustrated. Um, frustrated towards a couple of um, audiences and I'm interested in terms of frustration towards I guess our own shooting community because I do get the sense that shooters understand we've got a problem they know that you know there are limitation, limitations and there are, there are political issues that are there and need to be addressed but it's not it doesn't seem to translate into action now that's pretty much Australians all around not just the gun issue uh, they have to get personally directly affected before they'll get involved in it and you know when they when there are changes in the gun laws they typically don't affect all of the shooters it's good it's an old political tactic of course is you don't go after the whole the whole issue all at once you nibble away at it bit by bit by bit and so for instance in western australia now where they're trying to put a limit on the number of guns you're allowed to own there will be lots and lots of shooters who are saying, oh, well, I don't even want to own more than five or more than ten or whatever, so it doesn't bother me, yeah. rather than seeing it as um, chipping away slices off the salami, which is the, the better way to look at it. But it's not just shooters who do that. It's Australians. Australians in general are very compliant and obedient people. Though for some strange reason, which I don't get, they think the government is um, doing the right thing and has their best interests at heart. I can tell you from having been on the inside of politics that that's an absolute delusion. But nonetheless, that's the view they hold. And so getting them animated is um, and involved and active and so forth is really challenging. I found that both in the Shooters' Party and in the uh, Liberal Democrats. On the other hand, um, as we just saw with the referendum on, um, on the voice to Parliament, you, you can get them to vote the way you would like. They, they will um, often use their vote in a way that, that is consistent with their interests. 
You just have to explain to them how to do it and where and when and so forth. I think there's considerable scope to work on that. I know in the past there's been efforts to get shooters to use their preferences and, and to favour pro-gun candidates and all that sort of stuff. And it's had pretty mixed success at best. In many cases that was because it was too complicated or the benefits weren't obvious enough. So you do have to make sure you spell it out, you know, show them if you do this, you know, this will help your cause. Don't overcomplicate it because most Australians don't care too hoots about politics, so they avoid it like crazy. So you don't, they won't engage with it, they won't give it the time that, that they need to fully understand it. So you have to package the message in um, an easy to understand uh, format which they can get their head around in about five seconds. You can support this podcast by becoming a member of Politics Reloaded for just $3 a month. Just choose the podcast image at politicsreloaded.com for more information. You're working now on another book, as I understand. Yeah. yeah. Tell me about that. So this is a bit of an indulgence from me. Um, what I discovered with my first gun book was that the Americans weren't that interested in it. And I can understand why, although there are issues in it which are relevant to them and it was informative about Australia for, for them because, as, as you would be aware, Hillary Clinton was extolling Australia as an example of gun laws that America should follow. But the truth is... Most Americans, most American shooters who might have bought the book don't even know where Australia is. So you know, nothing much happens outside America. So it didn't sell uh, in America. It sold in Australia um, and a few overseas, but not in America. I, I took the view that I'm a member of the NRA. I've been a member of the NRA for a long, long time. And I, they do very good work. They don't really address the philosophical basis for gun control. Why control guns? Why not control guns? What is actually trying, what are you actually trying to achieve when you say we need gun control? How would you, how would you describe success? Do you, most people who rabbit on about this subject would argue are fewer guns in the community is a good outcome. Well, why? Why are fewer guns in the community? Does that include the police or the military? Because they have a lot of the guns. Oh, no, that's not what we mean, they say. It's other people. So why do you think fewer guns in the community is a good thing? Well, when you finally drill down to it, they say, oh, less crime. Ah, so you're, you're, you're really your objective is to reduce uh, violent crime. Do you mean all crime? or violent crime, or just gun crime. I mean, if people were killing each other with knives and clubs instead of guns, would that be an improvement? Those are the issues. So what actually are you trying to achieve? Is it less gun crime, less violence? Is it less, is fewer mass murders, or what? Now, the history of gun control is that it's not about crime, violence, or mass murders at all. Gun control has been on the agenda ever since guns were invented, and certainly well over 100 years. And its history is anything but about murders, mass murders, and, uh, and general violence. Its history is all political. And yet, 
somehow or other the gun control lobby conveniently forgets about its history and yet they they you know the old saying in politics is is uh, the eels you walk past are the eels you wear now what they're walking past is racism and dictatorships racism in gun control goes right back to the very beginnings of gun control in america the first gun laws were brought in to stop freed african americans blacks from having access to guns and um, that continued on for a long long time in new zealand the first gun control laws were brought in to keep them out of the hands of the maoris in australia the first gun control laws were brought in to keep them out of the hands of the aborigines pure pure racism so this is the history of gun control this is the the history that the gun control enthusiasts carry with them now it's not just racism though it's also political control in england the first significant gun control laws were brought in in 1920 just after the first world war had ended why then why that time because all around europe and in the in the um years during the war as well there had been uprisings mostly of soldiers against their government so the russians the russian revolution had occurred in 1917 with the bolsheviks but leading up to it there had been several military or several soldier-led uprisings and indeed the bolshevik revolution in 1917 was led by soldiers armed soldiers in 1919 in germany after it had been defeated there was a thing called the spartacus uprising it was an attempt to establish communist uh, rule in germany and the communists were very active and very strong there was communists all over the place in that period the russian revolution had inspired communists in in throughout europe the english the, well, the uk government was very nervous about the fact that there were hundreds of thousands of soldiers who had come back from the war who all knew how to use guns and in many cases brought their guns back with them they wanted to be sure that there was none of this communist uprising stuff occurring in england and so they introduced the gun laws you had to get a certificate to own a gun and if you if they didn't like the look of you they thought you were um, not the right person you didn't get a certificate and and it was it was of course up to the cops so that varied a lot from area to area yeah. but but that that's the history of gun control in the countries that that uh, we know about now in my book my first gun book gun control book there's also the history in the czech republic which was under the communist control for, until 1989 and the communists like all authoritarian governments controlled guns very severely and now in the czech republic they have very relaxed gun laws very similar to america you have a right to carry a gun for uh, self-defense for example that is a a reaction to the communists um, seeking to uh, con uh, maintain absolute control in india the the british wouldn't let the indians the indian population have guns or control them very severely funny thing is though that as, as explained in my book when the british left india and it became self-governing the new indian government didn't do anything to relax the gun laws they did, they decided that uh, 
though it maintained them. So as a result, India has fairly stupid gun laws which they inherited from the Brits. And, and you could argue that is also a class-based thing because as we know, India is, is, to, is divided by caste. The Indian government independence was primarily the upper castes and uh, of course they didn't want uh, the riffraff from having access to guns. Yeah. So the history of gun control is really not about crime or violence or mass murders or anything like that. It's about oppression and racism, keeping certain political people in power and others out of power. Yeah, I mean, as you know, you know, politicians work on pure numbers, pure votes, and if they think there's more votes and take, you know, going after the, the shooters, and they'll, they'll do that, uh, regardless, regardless also, of anything else. Yeah, so, but politicians are also worried about rebellion. Uh, they don't like the idea of rebellion. They, they can manipulate elections and tell lies and all that sort of stuff, stuff they're familiar with in, um, in election campaigns, but rebellion is something that scares them a lot. Yeah. And the one thing politicians don't want to do is lose office. Yeah. Um, so they will they will do whatever it takes essentially to uh, to maintain the status quo without wanting to dwell on the history of it um, there's one issue around Port Arthur that I think demonstrates that now I'm not I don't want to go down the discussion on Port Arthur itself but it just strikes me that we had a federal election in March of 96. Okay, and Port Arthur was six weeks after that. Now, during the campaign, I, I have clear memory of Labor's attacks on John Howard, who was not in power then. They attacked him on jobs, and they attacked him as not being a leader because he was always, you know, in the shadows of someone else. I, I remember they had some high-profile entertainers go on TV ads doubting that he was a leader. So it was a monkey on his back during the, the campaign. And I think even after he, he took office, of course, along came Port Arthur. What an opportunity to get rid of that monkey. So uh, so he, he was elected in early 96 uh, and Port Arthur occurred in April. Yes. So he'd only been, in, only been in the job a matter of a few weeks. Yes. And, then, and then Port Arthur occurred. The worst, the worst mass murder in Australian history prior to that We'd had the Whiskey A Go Go, was the worst mass murder, which was um, arson, fire, in Brisbane. This this was higher number of casualties, and Howard doesn't like guns. He drove it personally. He didn't. It, it wasn't Liberal Party policy. It wasn't National Party mm. policy. Um, he just doesn't like guns, and he's he also thinks that the government should have a monopoly on the ability to impose force. That's a view that originates from a German philosopher called Max Weber. So in other words, the, the government is the only legitimate source of forceful authority. Mm. So disarming the population under that thinking is legitimate. Now, many of us would substantially disagree with that. Of course, we think the government should be subservient to the people, not the other way around. But that was his philosophy. And he, he was newly elected. Um, he, was, he had massive political capital. 
and he brought it all to bear. The Labor Party has always been pretty equivocal on the gun issue. There's a few individual gun owners amongst the Labor Party people and they occasionally acknowledge that many of their constituents are enthusiastic about the shooting sports. In the Hunter Valley, for example, that's always been the case. Mm. But, um, but, uh, they but the Labor Party is infested with lefties, significant lefties, and, and unlike Marx and Engels and Lenin, um, the modern-day lefties don't think the proletariat should have guns. Um, Marx and Engels and Lenin would be rolling in their graves at that idea, but that, that's their view. They didn't mount any significant opposition to, to Howard. He had a pretty clear run. His only really significant source of opposition was the Nationals. Quite a few of them were opposed to the idea. But they had only just been elected. They were in coalition with the government. And Tim Fisher, who was their leader at the time, was um, pretty spineless. And so the opposition from the Nationals didn't eventuate. A few years later, when they, when Howard tried to do it again with pistols, yeah. by then the Nationals had discovered that their constituents were really, really angry with them and they were losing support all over the place. So they put up a lot of resistance at that point. So as a consequence, Australia did not go down the path that England had gone down and banned pistols. Um, they just um, put more restrictions on them. 1996, 1997, when the, the gun laws were being mooted, uh, Howard basically had personal courage of it. He used all of his uh, political capital and there was nobody in a position to oppose him. Yep. So with the book that you're working on now, it's for, uh, I, I take it, it's, it's actually including, I, I guess it's greater focus on including the international audience to better explain to them some of the international experiences. Yes. Um, how far along are you with, with, uh, with that book? It's about halfway written. The working title is The Theory and Practice of Gun Control. Um, that's a bit of a tongue-in-cheek title because there's a book called The Theory and Practice of Communism, hmm. which uh, is actually a very strong critique of, uh, of uh, communism. So it's my working title. I'm not sure whether it'll be the final title. But it's intended for an international audience, Australia, America, British, whatever. It's on the philosophy of gun control and the practicalities of gun control. What is attempting to be achieved and how successful um, are the um, regularly recycled proposals for gun control likely to be and how successful has gun control been in the past and the history of gun control. So every, every massacre, every mass murder, every large-scale killing of people in the 20th century was preceded by gun control, and I intend to document all that. There's actually an organisation called Jews for the Preservation of Firearm Ownership. I think they're moribund now. I haven't heard anything from them for a long time. Hmm. But they did a superb job about... 10, 20 years ago, of documenting all the um, all the massacres, and I think that it w they made it was a bit hard to access that information. And I think if I, if I make it um, relatively accessible in my book, I think more people will be um, informed about it. So gun control has a very sinister history. It has very mu murky, muddy objectives. 
Um, is it really about controlling violence or is it really just a continuation of political control that it, that it was in the 20th century? Okay, so apart from your books and the one that say it to um, hit the shelves, uh, what mm. other books are there that you really like uh, from our perspective? What books would you <laughs> recommend people actually look at? Yeah, so that's that's a tricky question because I've read a, quite a few of them looking for something so that I didn't have to write mine. Writing a book is not for the faint-hearted. You don't make many, much money out of it, if any. And uh, if someone else had already written one, it would have been a, quite a relief to me. So I, I'm not sure. There's quite a few from America, but they're very American-oriented. And it depends on what orientation you want. Do you, do you want... Second Amendment type arguments, and they're good, they're interesting, um, I enjoy reading about them, but they're not applicable to any other country outside of uh, Australia. There's, uh, what's the, the name of that? Malcolm, somebody Malcolm. Um, yes, there's a lady who's written about uh, gun control, name doesn't quite jump into my head at the moment. She's good. She uh, approaches it in a more philosophical approach, which is the one I like. Wayne LaPierre, the uh, executive director of National Rifle Association, has written at least one book, two books. I've got them. I've got them on my shelf here. They're good, and he's a good writer, but they are oriented very much towards an American audience yep. with a Second Amendment emphasis. So it depends what... There's a, books in Australia. There's one called Under Fire... Uh, by Nick Brody, which I I don't recommend you buy it. Um, I think it's crap. The only good thing in it was really the history of gun control in Australia in relation to the Aborigines and how it was targeted at the Aborigines. Oh yes, John Lott's books, More Guns, yeah. Less Crime. They're, they're worth a read because they debunk this idea that more guns equals more crime. Um, he does it in a very objective, factual method and it has absolutely enraged the anti-gun lobby in America. They absolutely go after him and of course because they can't deal with his arguments they go after him in a personal sense. It's the story of the... Of the I think they're coming for you David. Hey? They're coming for you. I can hear him in the background. Oh yeah. I've been there, done that. So um, I'm just thinking here. Yeah, now John Lott's John Lott's probably worth a read, quite American-oriented, but he does deal with this issue that more guns equals more crime very effectively. What he proves is, of course, it's the opposite. Or my argument is, in, in American context, is, he's right. In the Australian and other contexts and other, other countries, there just simply is no correlation between the number of guns yeah. and the level of gun crime. It just They just don't correlate at all. You can't find any relationship between them. I, I argue in my in my gun control book that they are independent variables. They move independently of each other. And if you if you go changing the gun laws in the expectation that it will have some impact on gun crime, you're not going to find any impact. It won't occur uh, because they're just not related to each other. One, one book which I like, um, even though it's of limited relevance but I think um, some underlying philosophy is actually very applicable and tell me if you've seen this is a book by Paul Vallone from 
uh, Grassroots North Carolina. Uh, it's called Rules for Anti-Radicals, a practical handbook for defeating leftism. Basically what the book is, is a summary of the political tactics that Grassroots North Carolina uses in, in North Carolina, um, how they are very active with um, working with politicians on, on particular bills. They, they've got a database they keep of how of the voting history of of politicians who, as you appreciate, I guess, seem to be more, in, more independently over there. He uses some pretty brutal political tactics to go after those that, that cross the line. And it's that kind of study which I'm interested in because we're not very good at going after politicians. And there are, there are differences. There are differences I appreciate. You, you would know more than anyone else. The influence of the party system is just so strong. Uh, it's hard to break. Um, but I'm nevertheless interested in the lessons that we can get from some of those tactics. Yes, so I went to America in 2017 and uh, met up with NRA people and some of the key politicians in um, in Washington and some of the think tanks. Mm. I met Thomas Massey, Rand Paul. Now, what? so this, this idea of looking at the voting record of individual or each politician and then giving them a rating, which is then publicised before an election, it's a very good idea in America. And it works. And everybody from Bill Clinton to, you know, candidates all over the place have said the NRA is very, very effective at, at doing that and uh, influencing the outcomes. As a consequence now, Congress is more pro-gun, to, to shorten the term, than it's ever been in history, I think. The, the issue for us, though, is whether we can do something like that. I, I remember having a chat with Thomas Massey in his office, and he said he's going to force an issue to be voted on because a lot of stuff doesn't get voted on in, in the parliaments and Congress. Hmm. It goes through on the voices. He says he's going to force a vote on it. Why? Because it contains a gun, a gun element in it, and he wants it to be on the record. And a lot of the Congress people, congressmen and women, didn't want to vote on it because they didn't want their vote to be recorded as anti-gun. Now, that would not happen in Australia, and it would rarely happen in the UK or New Zealand either because the party system is, is much more influential. You can go against the Republican Party or the Democratic Party on an issue like that with no consequences in America, but you can't do that here. If you vote against the party line, you risk your pre-selection and you'll probably lose your seat. So, so it doesn't really matter what the individual views are. If the party view is a certain one, then that's what you're stuck with. That said, there are... So that we can't just take what the guy in the um, uh, North Carolina was arguing and apply it to Australia. It's not, it's not doable. But we can modify it. We can talk to the individual members of parliament and potentially their major party can, uh, alternatives and learn what their private views are. And some of them make statements, public statements, which put their views on the record. There are quite a lot that, for example, will bang... As soon as there is a, a, um, a mass murder or some killing somewhere or something like that, they will come out with some kind of statement. So it's possible to accumulate the evidence that, that shows what their views are on gun control 
and use that against them when it comes to an election. But it's it's resource intensive. You know, you can't just you can't just so grab one little thing and say, right, that's it. Now everybody should vote for or against that individual. And of course, then there's the minor parties, the pro-gun minor parties, uh, the Liberal Democrats and the Shooters Party, amongst others. And then what do you do with them? They don't have preferential elections in the UK or New Zealand or or America. It's first past the post. Whereas in Australia, you can vote for a minor party and then give your preference to another to one of the major parties, mm. and that could be quite influential. So we have to be smarter, and and we can't just. Pick, pick up a template and apply it in Australia. Sure, okay. So David, look, thank you so much for your update on, on the books you've written and the book that you're, you're working on now. Do you have any idea when we're likely to see that book? So the one I'm working on now, uh, no, I don't. I've, I've set two timetables for it, two deadlines for it already, and I'm, I haven't met them, so I'm reluctant to give another timetable. I am getting close to full retirement, I am not yet fully retired, but if I hit full retirement in the next six months, I guarantee I'll finish it in that time. But um, that's subject to a few other factors. Okay. All right, David, thank you so much for your time, and um, we'll speak with you later. My pleasure. Thank you. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast and that you're on our email list. And don't forget to check the episode notes, because that's where you'll find out how you can support us. Plus, let us know if you want something promoted on the podcast. Maybe you've got a shoot coming up that you want to promote. Just let us know. We'll see you at our next episode of Gun News Australia, brought to you by Politics Reloaded.